You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Good morning. It's a real privilege and pleasure to be here with you, and uh, thanks for the snow. We have a little bit of snow in Idaho, but not as much as you all have. I spent five years in Alaska growing up, so, you know... I like snow, actually. So thanks for that. I want to also thank uh, the pastors and elders for having me. What a privilege it's been, a pleasure it's been to meet you, to know you. Um, I, I, love, I love being able to travel occasionally, meeting brothers and sisters in Jesus, and, and just finding home again, right? It, it, we're, we're part of the family of God, uh, and, uh, and so it's, it's such a delight to be with you, see what the Lord's doing um, here in your midst, and, um, and so um, in that spirit, bring you greetings from the saints at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and maybe you don't even know we exist, but now you do, and if you're ever lost in Idaho, come look us up. The sermon text uh, for this morning is Exodus, from Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and I'm, I'm picking up really in the middle of stuff, um, but I will try to fill it out as we go along. Exodus chapter 12, I'm going to begin at to the very end of the chapter, so I'm beginning at verse 41, and I'm going to read to the end, and I'm, I'm made a habit of preaching out of the old King James. I know that some of you, I think you probably have ESVs around here, but we just sang a Christmas song. All the Christmas songs are in KJV, so I think you can, this is Advent, right? So can, you, can, you can roll with me. So um, Exodus 12, beginning at verse 41. This, these are the very words of God, so please give your attention to the reading of God's word. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel and their generations. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. Thou shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it, and when a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is home-born and to the stranger that sojourneth among you. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are the God who comes. You have heard the cries of your people and you have come down through the ages and you have come to us in your son Jesus. And we thank you that he will come again and put all things right. Father, we thank you that because you have demonstrated yourself to be the God who comes, that we can confidently ask you to come to us now. And so we ask you to come to us now by the power of your spirit and in your word. And would you come and would you meet each one of us right where we are? Encourage us, confront us, convict us, and build us up. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was preaching through this book a number of years ago, and it was, I think, this section or one of the sections like it that um, really caught me off guard. And maybe it did the same to you. Maybe it struck you as odd as well. And it's, it's that last verse, verse 51, that I, I just read a moment ago. It came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. And I, it's that last word that I got caught on. I, I, I stopped and I, I thought, well, you know, that, uh, what, what, what? Armies? I mean, I know the story of the Exodus. I know there were armies involved. And Israel didn't have any. Right? You know the story. I mean, I had picture Bibles growing up. There's a lot of people with rods and robes and sheep. Right? And then there are armies. The Egyptians had armies, soldiers, chariots. We sang songs about it. Spears, armor. I know about the armies in the story of the Exodus, and Israel didn't have any of the armies. So I think, well, maybe it's just a, it's just a little rhetorical flourish, a little poetical thing going on. And so um, I do, I did what what pastors do. And I looked at the Hebrew. And um, the word there is the word tzabaoth. Uh, now you can say it. Tzabaoth. Now you know Hebrew. Okay? And so you know this word and you've actually sung it. We sung it yesterday actually at the, at the men's retreat um, right here. Um, we sing it whenever we sing a mighty fortress is our God. You remember this? Dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. I don't know about you, but I sung that song growing up in the church, and I think for a long time I thought that was a weird way to spell Sabbath. Lord Sabbath, his name, okay. From age to age the same, he must win the battle. All right. Well, no, it's the word Sabaoth. Um, it's, it's a Hebrew transliteration. It's just making English letters follow the, the Hebrew sounds. It's like the word hallelujah. When you sing hallelujah, that's a Hebrew word. Uh, amen or amen. It's a Hebrew word. It's just transliterated straight over into all the languages. We sing and pray those words straight over from Hebrew. And Greek did the same. And the, so Sabaoth means armies. Or sometimes translated hosts. But it means armies. That's the word there in, in Exodus twelve fifty one. Armies. So Israel came out of the land of Egypt by their armies. That's why it makes sense in a mighty fortress is our God. He's the Lord of armies is his name, and that's why he must win the battle. Because he's the Lord of armies. But again, I was still stuck here with this. Okay, so Lord of armies. Well, then I, so I did my search on it, and, and it actually shows up Again here in, in verse 41. So that's where I began reading this morning. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went up out of the land of Egypt. This is hosts here in, in the King James of verse 41. But it's the word armies. It's the same word. And, and then I, I look and it actually showed up back in verse 17 of chapter 12 as well. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. 
And in the the selfsame day that I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt, therefore shall you observe this day and your generations by an ordinance forever. Like, okay, three times in one chapter, but still, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not, that doesn't mean that's all, I mean, it's just, you know, poetry maybe. But then I, I kept on looking and, and it shows up again in, in chapter seven, verse four, flip over there. Chapter 7, verse 4. Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth my armies, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And then chapter 6, verse 26. These are that Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. You see, it's only used, it's only used one other time in the book of Exodus. It's used six times in the book of Exodus. Five of those times are here in the story of the Exodus, and it never once refers to the Egyptians. You see, according to the story of, of, of the book of Exodus, the way Moses has told this story, Pharaoh had no armies. Pharaoh has chariots. He has soldiers, and some of you are flipping through, and you're like, I'm pretty sure I saw the word armies in here. And yeah, you're right. The English translations actually translate a word army. They they translate a particular word armies several times in the narrative, but it's not the same word. And it's not the usual word for armies. It's the word for, it means strength. It means might. And it could, you know, it can refer to military might. Now, my point, of course, is not to say that Pharaoh, like, literally didn't have any armies. Okay, he has armies, clearly. They're chasing them, they have spears, chariots, horses, and soldiers, and so forth, okay? That's not my point. My point is, why did Moses write the story this way? Why did God inspire Moses to tell the story this way? And why is God so insistent on referring to Israel as his armies? But the the picture kind of gets filled out a little bit even more. It's, it's not just that he calls them armies, but there are some ways in which God is insisting that they act like armies. So, so for example, in just a few verses above uh, what we read in, in Exodus 12, it, back in, in verse 36, in 12.36, it says, The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and so they plundered the Egyptians. And actually, this, is, this was something that, that God had told Moses back back at the very beginning, when, when Moses was still at the burning bush. He had said that he was, going to, he was going to send Moses to Egypt. He was going to smite Egypt with all his wonders, with all his plagues. And in verse 21 of chapter 3, it said, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when you go, you shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels, of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and you shall put them on your sons and upon your daughters, and so you shall spoil or plunder the Egyptians. And so, and so the story is set up such that, that God keeps referring, and, and you think, like, but, but, but seriously, 
But, but seriously, they, these, these people are not armies. I mean, just think about how difficult and reluctant Israel was. Moses shows up. Sort of, you know, he introduces himself. I, I've, I've I met with God in the wilderness. He says that he has a plan to deliver you, and we're going we're gonna to go. And they're, well, okay, sort of open to the idea maybe initially. He goes into Pharaoh's court, has the initial showdown with them, and how does that go? It doesn't go well at all. Pharaoh says, you're just getting them away from their work. That's it. Double the work. No straw for the bricks. And how does that go over? Never mind, we don't want your help, Moses. Go away. We don't like your plan. Sounds horrible. You just made everything worse. Thanks for nothing. We'll deal with this ourselves. And of course, Moses goes back out and cries out to God and says, God, they're not listening. They're not listening. They're, they're, they don't want to do this. They don't like your plan. And this is where God says, no, it's, no, it's fine. I know. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to destroy Egypt and I'm going to lead Israel out. I'm going to lead Israel out. And it's in that answer where he's saying, I'm going to lead them out, for they are my armies. They're my armies. What is God doing in this? What's God doing in this story? I think. Buried in this, hidden somewhat away, is a very powerful demonstration of God's grace. What is God like? What is salvation like? What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to belong to God? And what does this then show us about what God is doing in this world? What is he doing? What kind of God is he and what does it mean to belong to him. What, is, what does Israel actually do? You say, well, okay, so God runs these bombing runs on Egypt. You know, Egypt is, is the greatest empire in the world at this time. The greatest empire in the world at this time. And God says, sends Moses in. And this is, you know, this is his plan. He's sending an old man with a stick. Right? Right? An old man with a stick is gonna, it's, you know, that old man with a stick, you know, it's like knocking on the White House door. Right? And you just, the service people just, you know, hustle him right off. <laughs> Crazy guy with a stick. Right? Now Moses has a little bit of credentials because he grew up in the Pharaoh's house and so forth, and he's sort of a wanted man. But again, he's just been, he's been shepherding sheep for 40 years in the wilderness. Who are you? That's what Pharaoh says. Who are you? And why should I listen to you? And who's your God? Never heard of him? No thanks. I've got, a, I've got a, an economy that's booming here. We've got our way of life. We've got our things. We know what we're doing. We don't need you. No thanks. See you. Go away. Please, go. And Moses says, okay, well, I'm going to show you who the Lord is. You don't know who the Lord is. The Lord is the one who runs everything. So let's, I don't know, let's... Let's start with sticks. Let's start with your water. Let's start with the frogs. What do you want to talk about? My God runs it all. Yahweh God runs it all. Jehovah God runs it all. 
And so one after another, and and in a couple of places, God um, particularly tells Moses that what he's doing is he's actually triumphing over the gods of Egypt. So the, the Egyptians had deified all these elements of creation and nature and Pharaoh himself thinking that they had, they had tricked power out of these things. And so they had life coming out of the Nile and knife, uh, life coming out of the sky and, and, and life and glory in their, in their agricultural industries and in their economy and all these things. And so they, they served them like gods. And so one by one, God says, Oh, you trust in that? Watch this. You trust in that too? Okay, watch this. It's just going to go haywire. Okay? Locusts everywhere. I'm just going to turn the lights out. It's dark. You think you serve the storm god? Watch this. You ain't seen hailstones like this. I'm going to kill everything. And so God runs these bombing runs over and over again, ten times, right? Running through the greatest empire in the world at the time, utterly decimating it, destroying it. And what's Israel doing? Well, for a good bit of it, they're fussing. Oh, it's hard, Moses. The work is hard now. They, li- they hate us. Pharaoh hates us even more. They're complaining. They're fussing. Maybe they kind of start to come along towards the end. And then God says, okay, one more. One more. This is it. He's going to let you go now. Remember, too, I mean, there were several offers along the way. You know, after a few of the plagues, like, just, just go, you know, for a couple days. Moses says, no, we need to go and we need to go. We're going to worship the Lord. Okay, wait, f- fine, all the men can go. No, the women and the children will go with us. We will all go worship the Lord. So, he, he, you know, think about, again, the PR between Moses and the Israelites. Moses, he gave you the chance. Moses says, no, we're doing it God's way. We're all going. No compromises, no. Just let them go. And so God says, all right, this is it. This is going to be the 10th plague. This is the last one, and this is what I need you to do. You're going to take a lamb. You're going to kill the lamb for as many mouths are in the household. And if you're poor, you can share it. And you're going to take the blood from the lamb and you're going to put it on your doorposts and you're going to get rid of all the leaven in your house all the leaven of Egypt you know what leaven is some of you bread bakers maybe I had to I baked bread for a summer I had to learn a lot about leaven leaven of course is is it's living it's it's living yeast it's the principle of growth they say that depending on where you get your leaven from uh, in the world, it actually takes on characteristics of the, of the climate that it's in. And so that's why San Francisco sourdough is famous, because it takes on the characteristics of San Francisco. And there's certain kinds of leaven that you can get from, from the coast of France and the coast of Italy, and it takes on various characteristics of the humidity and the temperatures and those sort of things. It, it takes on characteristics of the life of the world it's around, and then you take a little bit of that leaven, you, you feed it each day with a little bit of water and bread. It's, a, it's basically, you know, it's, a, um, it, it's alive. Um, and... Um, and you take a little bit of it and you, it becomes the base then for your, for your next loaf of bread. It's, it's a living culture. It's a live um, uh, leaven. 
uh, yeast. And he said, get rid of it all. Because you're going to get rid of Egypt. Right? You've been using leaven that you made in Egypt, and it's taken on the characteristics of Egypt. It's taken on the principle of life that's in Egypt. You have all your 401ks here, and your college programs, and, and you've built your life around the economy here in Egypt, and the way of life here in Egypt, and, and, and you're going to get rid of it now. We're going to start all over again. So get rid of the leaven, and you're just going to make bread just with you know, flour and water, and it's going to be flat, because it's not going to have any yeast in it. We're going to start over. You're gonna, it's not like they were never going to have leaven again. They were going to start over, though, with new leaven. They were going to make a new leaven based on a new way of life. And, and, and so God says, you're going to get rid of all the leaven. You're going to make unleavened bread, and you're going to kill the lamb, and you're going to eat the lamb, and you're going to put the blood over the doorposts, and you're going to put on traveling clothes. And that night, I'm going to come through the land of Egypt, and I'm going to strike down the firstborn, and everyone with the blood over their doorposts is going to be spared. And everyone who doesn't have the blood over the doorpost, their firstborn son is going to be slain. And, and, and then I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand. And so you see, God involved the Israelites in, their, in the war, in the battle, but it's not the kind of battle that you might think. He says, here's what I need you to do. You're going to put on your traveling clothes and you're going to kill a lamb and you're going to put the blood over your doorway and you're going to get rid of your leaven. There we go. And that's how we're going to, we're going to put the, the death blow in Pharaoh and in Egypt and you're going to go free. So the people, this ragtag band, fussing, complaining, having all kinds of objections. And at the end, God says, here, kill a lamb, put the blood on your doorpost, and then we're going to march out of here. And you're going to look at your neighbors, and you're going to say, can I have that? And they're going to say, sure. And they're going to give it to you. And you're going to plunder the Egyptians, and you're going to march out of here, my conquering army. Now, the thing is, is that that itself is kind of cool and kind of neat. And you think, wow, yeah, wow, that's, that's kind of neat. Then God is so powerful, and he, he, he demonstrates his power, and then he invests his people with the credit. He, he's the one running the bombing runs. He's the one running the plagues. He's the one doing it all. And they're fussing and they're complaining. And then he, he just invests them. He says, you're my armies. And they go marching out, having plundered the people. And you think, well, that maybe that's, that's cool. That's neat. But is that just sort of an anomaly, something kind of interesting about the book of Exodus? And the thing that I want to just leave you with is the fact that it's not. It turns out that the whole Bible is filled with stories that demonstrate this same pattern that God uses over and over and over again. That this is not an anomaly, but this is the way God works. Just think about the way the rest of Exodus works. So often we, we finish at chapter 20, they get to Sinai, and we say, ta-da, they made it to Sinai. That's half the book of Exodus. The other half of the book of Exodus is them going out into the wilderness and building the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is God's house, and it's the center. And, and Numbers 2 says that Israel is supposed to camp around it like a war camp. And literally, in Numbers 2, over and over again, calls the tribes again, the armies of God, the armies of God. And they're, they're camped around. But what are they camped around? Where's their king? Their king is there in the, in the holy place, in the most holy place, in the tabernacle. And God gives them all these elaborate sacrifices and rituals. And you're thinking, well, where, where do we get to the action? Right? We, but, you know, put the blood on the thumb and then, all right, whatever. And, you know, what, and you're just going to, okay, but where's the action? But the whole point of the book of Exodus is to say that is where the action is. When God's people come and they sacrifice a lamb, that's the action. 
When the priest is doing the things that God has commanded him to do, that's the action. It's pointing towards Jesus. It's pointing towards the new covenant. It's pointing towards the cross and forgiveness and redemption. But God's teaching his people, this is where the action is. Yes, they're going to go out, actually, and you're going to see battles. They're going to actually go fight, and and they're going to win those battles. But all the emphasis is actually not where we think it is. Yes, they're going to fight those wars, but God says, you're my armies here. You're my armies here when you're worshiping me. When you're putting blood over your doorpost, you're worshiping me. When, you're, when you're, you're fighting the battle, when you're eating the unleavened bread, you're fighting the battle. You eat the unleavened bread and what happens? The firstborn die. You put the blood over your doorpost, what happens? Pharaoh says, get out of here, go. You ask for your neighbor and they give you. You worship me. The, the, the high priest has this crazy get up. Read it sometime. Try to draw a picture of it, kids. What does it look like? It's, an, it's this kind of crazy armor. He has breastplate and shoulder pads and a sash. And he has these pomegranate shells all around the, the bottom hem of his garment. So when, why? You're like, why? Because what I think, because he walks, it sounds awesome. It sounds like he's got armor on. You're like, what is he doing? He just kills animals all day long. What's he doing? The point of it is he's leading Israel in warfare. Do you want to win? Then fight here. How do you fight here? You confess your sins on the head of this animal and you kill it. And then you put it in the fire. And you put the blood at the base of that altar over there. And you sprinkle it over there. And you hear the pronouncement. Your sins have been taken away. God's telling them, this is where your battles happen. This is how you win the war. And, and so this, and this, this continues. I mean, they go into, the, the, into Joshua, right? And they're going to take the first city. And God says, look, yes, we're going to fight some battles, but I want you to understand where the real battle is being fought. So the priests are going to take the ark, and they're going to march in front of the army. And you're going to do it for seven days, one, one day, one time each day. You're just going to march around blowing trumpets. And on the seventh day, you're going to blow those trumpets and everybody's going to shout and the wall's going to fall down. Do you get it? Yeah, swords, sometimes we use swords. But God doesn't need them. Sometimes, sometimes there is that battle. Sometimes it's a just war. God says, but I don't need it. I can take down cities as well with shouts. I can take down cities just as well with trumpets blaring. I can take down cities and empires with unleavened bread. And the story just keeps going. There's this one crazy story right after the, 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 the battle of Jericho and, and they, you know, they get in trouble with Achan and so on and they, they lose a battle at Ai, but then when they set the ambush the second time and they win that battle, it's, it's right between these, these two cities between Bethel and Ai. And, and I was reading that one time and I thought to myself, wait a sec, where have I heard that description before? Right between Bethel and Ai. And it turns out that 450 years earlier, that's the very spot where Abraham built his first altar. What was Abraham doing when he built that altar in Canaan? What was he doing when he walked around Canaan building altars? That was the first bombing run on Canaan. Right? God claims this land. God claims this land. God claims this land. This belongs to God. Worshiping God faithfully. And then 450 years later, he's setting ambushes there for the descendants of Canaan. Prayer and worship are God's 
bombing runs. When Gideon won his great battle against the Midianites with a tiny band, blowing trumpets and shouting. God's doing the same thing again. No, that's too many men, Gideon. Get rid of some more. No, get some, no, no more. No, get rid of them all. Just, I don't know, figure out something with how they drink or something. Get rid of a bunch of them, right? Okay, 300, that's good, right? Why? Because the point is God doesn't need the soldiers. He doesn't need their swords. He doesn't need their prowess. He doesn't need their strength. He doesn't need their coordination because God takes down cities and empires hymns his own way. He's the sovereign Lord, and he is the Lord of armies, and his armies are whatever he wants them to be. And the point that I want to make is, all through the Bible, his armies are his people. And it's ridiculous, because his people are no good. His people are always a ragtag band of people who complain and fuss and don't know how to fight, and then God just sort of drags them by their legs and says, you're going to win. We're like, I don't want to win. Yes, you do. And he just drags us across the finish line and then puts a first place golden medallion on it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it was pretty good, wasn't it? That's grace. That's how God wins his battles over and over and over and over again. And this leads right into the New Testament. It leads right into Advent. How did God decide that he was going to take down the empires of men? How did God say he was going to topple sin and death and Satan? I know. I'll find a teenage girl. And my eternal son will be incarnate as a zygote in her womb. That's how I'll do it. And he'll grow up as a little boy. He'll live... Yeah, he'll do some miracles. He'll show who he is. He'll reveal who he is. But the way that we're going to break the back of death and Satan and hell is he is going to bear in his body on the cross the curse of sin and death. And they're going to think they're winning. And in that very moment, when they crush him, he will have crushed death and sin and Satan from the inside. And it will die and be dead forever. And then I will win. And he will rise on the third day to make all things new. And he's doing the exact same thing, though. He, he doesn't do that. And again, think about this in terms of Advent, maybe. We, we have this tendency, maybe, just to think, you know, God, you know, we're, just, we, we, we're always these, these armies. We, we, we fuss, we complain. This, this is not the way we'd have done it. And look at what they're doing now. And look at how many babies they've murdered through abortion. And look at what they're doing now with sexual perversion. And boys think they're girls, and girls think they're boys, and boys think they can marry each other, and all this insanity... God, you've got to get in here. And yes, God does need to get in here. But the thing is, is that God's already in here. And he's doing, he's, he's winning the victories the way he wants to win them, the way he's always won them. And he, and he did this. I mean, Jesus, I mean, by our account, Jesus should have stayed. Right? He arose from the dead. All right, let's go get him. And Jesus says, all right, I'm going to be leaving now. We said, this is a terrible idea. And he says, no, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go. You go. Because God is determined to do it the way he's always done it. Through his people, who he considers his armies. You know the crazy thing about the, the high priest get up? The high priest get up, he's got this, this breastplate. And he said, when you make that breastplate, you're going to make it full of precious jewels, 
all the different kinds of jewels, 12 of them. And I want you to engrave the names of the tribes of Israel on each one of those. Right? Because I'm going to wear my people Israel like my armor. Right? You are my armies. You see, so the, the, the gospel, the, the good news of God's grace is not merely that he saves us. Yes, he saves us. But he's determined not merely to save us, but he's determined to wear us. He's determined for us to be his armies. And, and what, is, what is the weapons he's given us? Well, it's the same kind of crazy warfare tactics that he's always used. He says, go into all the world. And what are we supposed to do? Baptize everybody. Like, God, but you know, that is just water. Yeah, it's just water. And that's how I win. Right? So you put water on everybody. Right? Make disciples of all the nations and put water on them all. You, where you, it's just like it's always been. Right? Put blood on your door. What does blood on your doorpost do? Just trust me, we're going to win. And you're going to get together, and you're going to gather together, and you're going to sing loud to the Lord. You're going to praise Him on all kinds of instruments and make a loud noise. And what are we doing, God? Well, we're just knocking walls down. That's what we're doing. We don't know how it works, but that's what, it's, what's what we're doing. We're to worship God together. You're going to get together, and, and I want you to eat bread and drink wine together. What are we doing? Conquering the world. Right? But don't you think we should like run for office or something? Sure, some of you are called to run for office. Some of you are called to be judges and senators and governors and sir. Yeah, do that too. But the most important thing you need to do at the center of the war camp, you're going to break bread together and you're going to share it and drink wine together and you're going to rejoice before the Lord. Because when you rejoice before the Lord, I'm going to go and wipe out your enemies. I'm going to be raising you up as my armor. My, my armies, my hosts, because I am the Lord of hosts and you are my hosts. What are we doing? What are we doing when we do what he commands us to do? We're going to war. So what does God put in your hand? Right? If God is using unleavened bread and blood over doorposts and water and bread and wine and some guy standing up here on Sunday morning telling you that Jesus died and rose again to, to save the world, if God's using that, then he's, and he's using you, he used a virgin womb, and he used a cross, then this means that he's using you. He's using you wherever you are. You're his army. And so when you're there changing diapers, right? And there's one over there and one over there and the one over there, you know, is hitting the one over there. Right? What are you doing? You say, I'm going to war. That's what you say. You say, I'm part of God's army. I belong to Jesus. And that means he's wearing me as his armor. And when I am teaching these little children to love Jesus, and I'm loving them with the love of Christ, I'm going to war. When I make another peanut butter and jelly sandwich for them, I'm going to war. When I tell the truth at work, I'm going to war. When I love my wife and I lay my life down for her, I say, honey, I got the dishes. It's no problem. I got it. What are you doing? You're going to war. He said, well, that's not really war. Is it? If you're doing it unto the Lord... If you're offering it up to the Lord and you're saying, God, you've called, this, you've called me to this. You've, you've given me this assignment. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. I'm a roommate. I'm an employer. I'm an employee. I'm a co-worker. I'm a friend. And you've assigned this to me and you've given this to me. God says that when he puts it in your hand, it's a weapon. It's a weapon. Because when you offer it up to the Lord, it's like Abraham building an altar in the promised land. You say, this is Jesus, this belongs to Jesus. He died and rose again, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, all of it. 
Authority over finances, authority over diaper changing, authority over education, authority over wardrobes. Right? It all belongs to him because he bought it all. He purchased it all with his blood, and so it belongs to him. He's Lord of all. And so he's Lord in all. And so wherever we are and we submit to his lordship and we say, okay, you've saved me, you've rescued me, you've forgiven my sins, and you've assigned this to me, you are to understand that you are the armies of God. You are the hosts of God. He is the Lord of armies, and the armies are not somewhere else. Out there, in heaven, just the angels. Now you are his armies. You are his hosts. This is why Paul can say, even in Romans 8, you know that wonderful passage where he's extolling the, the love of God. I'm just going to read it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted like sheep for the slaughter. I never understood why that, why that verse there. Because God has always won by slaughtering sheep. We're going to win. We're going to beat Pharaoh now. What are we going to do? Sheep. Put the blood on the doorpost. And so now if we're the sheep and we're getting slaughtered, if we're the sheep and we're being persecuted, if we're the sheep and we're being slandered, if we're the sheep and we're going through hardship, Paul says, well, then we're right where we're supposed to be. Now we can't lose. And that's what he says. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're not survivors. We're armies. We're conquering armies. Jesus bought this land, bought this city, bought this town. It belongs to him. He purchased it with his blood. He didn't say, go into all the world and give it your best shot. He said, go into all the world and disciple the nations. What does that mean? It means we preach and teach and love and serve and worship until every nation bows its knee to Jesus. Until every nation says, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, we've got Supreme Court, Congress, President, and Jesus over us. Until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the crazy thing, the glorious thing, the wonderful thing is God has determined to do this by his grace and that means that he's determined to do it through people like us. Messed up people like us. Ragtag armies like us. Why? To magnify his grace. What are you doing, God? <laughs> Using me. What are you do? Like, That doesn't make any sense. I'm, I just messed up again today. And God says, yeah, and you're right there on my breastplate. Shut up. Right? Confess your sin, repent, move on. You're still my army. Right? Put your, head on, put your hand on the, on the animal. Kill the animal. Put your hand on Jesus. Jesus died for that sin. It's gone. Now get up and get going again. And then do it again tomorrow. Confess your sin. Stop wallowing in it. He died for it. He already knew about it. It's gone. He removes it from the east as far as the east is from the west. Get up and go. I know, yes, yeah, some sins are harder than that, but, but we've got work to do. And you're his armies, and he's just dragging us. He's dragging us all. But he's determined to do this because he is the Lord, and he can do it. He's the Lord. You say, but no, this is a good plan. Right, you and all the Israelites before you. And God says, I don't really care what you think. I'm going to save this world with you. 
And yes, it's all by my grace, and you don't get it, and you don't understand it, and people are going to misunderstand. Sure, that's fine. That's how it's always been, and I'm going to win anyways. Because Jesus died, he rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the God who has come. He is the God who always comes, and he is the God who will come again. He purchased this place. It belongs to him. So we might as well come along cheerfully. Father and God, we praise you and we thank you that you are the God of armies. You're the Lord of hosts. And Father, we don't understand why you have determined to do it this way, but we praise you and we thank you that you have determined to do this through a ragtag band such as us. Father, we praise you and we thank you that this means that you are determined that we would be conquerors, more than conquerors, even in pain, even in suffering, even in loss, even in the mundane day-to-day things, you have determined to use them for your glory and for the conquering of this world by your grace. Father, we pray that you would comfort our hearts, encourage us, teach us to repent and move on quickly. Father, we ask that you would be glorified here. In Jesus' name, and amen.